adversary against democracy, against freedom, against life, against liberty, against justice, against peace, against righteousness be overturned right now in the name of Jesus. Let we the people have the assurance of a fair and a just election. I thank you for President Trump. That was Paula White. She's a former faith advisor to President Trump. She spoke at a Save America rally before rioters stormed the Capitol on January 6th. As the House Committee's investigation into January 6th continues and more details are revealed, it's hard to ignore the prevalence of one ideology, Christian nationalism. Christian nationalists believe America was founded on Christian principles and that Christianity should be the basis for how the nation develops its laws and policies. But many experts have warned that what happened on January 6th is just one example of Christian nationalism taken to an extreme. So just how has Christian nationalism influenced American politics and does it pose a threat to democracy? We'll get into all of that and more after the break. I'm Celeste Headley in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to have your questions answered on future shows or just let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat therapy sessions. And you can be matched with your therapist in under 48 hours. NPR listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into our discussion of Christian nationalism and its influence on American politics. Joining us is Andrew Whitehead, co-author of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the U.S. He's also a professor of sociology at IUPUI in Indianapolis. Also with us, Catherine Stewart, an investigative journalist and author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, and Jamar Tisby. He's a historian of race and religion and an advocate of racial justice. He's written The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us today. Um, Andrew, let's begin with the sort of the core beliefs that that underpin Christian nationalism as an ideology? What are they? Yeah, that's a great question and place to begin. Um, so in our work um, as sociologists trying to understand Christian nationalism, we think about it as a cultural framework. Um, and cultural frameworks are those ideologies that are, they contain symbols and, and narratives, um, traditions that unite us and dramatize the values that we hold dear. Um, and, and many times we don't even notice them. They just are. And to the extent that cultural frameworks like Christian nationalism are taken for granted, that's when they're the most powerful. And so this cultural framework um, idealizes and advocates for a fusion of a particular expression of Christianity with American civic life. And we find over and over um, that it combines a number of different elements. So the first is a strong sense of moral traditionalism that um, is based on creating and sustaining social hierarchies, a lot of times around gender and sexuality. Uh, a second element is a comfort with authoritarian social control. Um, and so the idea is the world is a chaotic place and at times 
society needs strong rulers and rules to make use of violence or the threat of violence in order to maintain um, order. And then the final element is the desire for um, strict boundaries around national identity, civic participation, um, and uh, social belonging. And a lot of times these fall along ethno-racial lines. So a Christian, a Christian nation in this view um, is generally understood to be one where white natural born citizens are held up as the ideal and everybody else comes after. Um, and so that is what makes um, this ideology and framework so powerful and, and what presents many of the challenges and threats to democracy that we see today. We got a tweet from Lena right now who says, as a lifelong Southern Baptist, it's hard to see how our church embraced Trump and the big lie. I've struggled to understand how the people I respected my whole life have so strongly fought for him when in any other part of their life they would never support anyone like him. We also got a note, uh, Jamar, from one of our listeners who wanted us to make sure to point out the connection with the Catholic Church. And yet Christian nationalism is non-denominational. Why is that an important point? Yes, Christian nationalism really cuts across uh, all kinds of denominational and sectarian divides. Again, as Andrew pointed out, it's it's a cultural framework. So if you adopt this cultural framework, you're in the club, so to speak. Um, and we've seen increasing uh, visibility of uh, right-wing fundamentalists, um, religious people from all sectors, including Catholicism, support Christian nationalism. So it, it, it is not something that we should think is exclusive to, say, white evangelicals as, as a demographic, right? It, it, it is anyone who would subscribe to these ideas that essentially the, the church and the state are coextensive and the success of the United States as a nation, in their view, is tied up to adherence to this uh, narrow interpretation of Christian tradition. And for those who, for whom coextensive is an unfamiliar term, it means uh, corresponding exactly uh, in its extent that they are basically not even just parallel, they're on top of one another. Um, and But Catherine, let me bring you into this by asking, you know, there's a lot of terms that get thrown around as we try to grapple with the current state of politics right now. We hear a lot about white evangelicals. We hear about white supremacy. Uh, we hear about conservative Christians. How do we distinguish between all these different things? And is Christian na nationalism the same thing? Is it a synonym? Look, a political movement is an organized quest for power. So Christian nationalism has an ideology, um, but it also has an organizational infrastructure. Um, a key way to describe the movement is actually in terms of its political reach. It now completely dominates the Republican Party. And in fact, its allied politicians are able to dominate many state legislatures. Um, its leadership has stacked the Supreme Court with justices favorable to its agenda. So it's a leadership-led movement whose organizational infrastructure serves to mobilize and often manipulate a large subsection of the American public to vote a certain way, to vote for political candidates that um, the movement leaders favor and thereby to sort of concentrate power in the hands of a new elite. We got this voicemail from Bill in Texas. We have to remember how this country started. People were fleeing being persecuted for their religious beliefs. And to me, if we go down this road, that's where we're headed. So it's supposed to be separate from state. 
and that's the way we need to continue. Thanks. So, Andrew, when a Christian nationalist says or refers to religious liberty, what do they mean? Yeah, so there. this has been a key part of the movement as well as a redefinition of religious freedom or religious liberty. So um, the focus, as Catherine said, of Christian nationalism is defending access to power, a privileged access to power. So you'll hear them talk in terms of our rights, our privileges, our country, our heritage. Um, and so this idea of religious liberty um, really is shifting from it's no longer referring to this right of any citizen to practice or not practice religion without governmental interference. Um, rather, it's a redefinition of religious liberty as the right to bring privately held religious beliefs into the public square um, to restore, in their view, kind of, quote unquote, these Christian foundations of the country as they see them um, to where then everybody will have to align um, with, with those, that vision and, and those views. There is the question, one of our listeners suggested that we should ask all politicians when they're taking their oath, which do they think is supreme, either the Bible or the Constitution? Um, Jamar, can you grapple with this about, among Christian nationalists, which is the more important document for them? <laughs> um Again, it, 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 there's such a close identification between church and state or church and nation that you'll you'll see a lot of parallels. So one thing I've noticed is uh, they Christian nationalists will revere the Constitution as almost divinely inspired. You can't touch it. You can't mess with it. It was perfect in its original conception, which actually parallels their. Uh, view of biblical interpretation as well. And there's this very literalist view in interpreting both the Bible and the Constitution as essentially sacred texts. I, so, I, I want to interrupt you here just really quickly because the Bible has been edited and changed and amended. The Constitution has been amended. How does a Christian nationalist then deal with that? So I think what Christian nationalists are really attempting to do is push back against um, changes that broaden and expand democracy for all kinds of people. So they're trying to preserve a particular hierarchy and social order that they believe was enshrined in the Constitution and to some extent in the Bible as well. So that's what they'll do. They'll say these changes are, are, are moves in the wrong direction. The Bill of Rights? Good with <laughs> Christian nationalists or no? Do do they want to keep the Bill of Rights? <laughs> Depends on which rights you're talking about and, most importantly, for whom. <laughs> this is not new. Christian nationalism is not. It's not even uniquely American. We see it in other countries as well. But how far back does this particular ideology go in history? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and really, it, I, it's been with us since uh, the first you know, European set foot uh, on this land. Um, at that moment trying to make sense of who they were as a people, what they were all about, and what they were supposed to do here. We see the beginnings of them tying together their religious faith um, with what they wanted to do. So how they treated uh, Native Americans that were already here, how they treated um, African slaves that they brought over, these were intimately intertwined with their understandings of what God wanted them to do and who they were as a people. And we see race at this point being uh, intertwined with Christian nationalism. So it really is a white Christian nationalism in its understanding. 
Um, and then through the decades and years, um, we see it shifting and changing to those moments where the nation is trying to understand itself, who we are as a people. Um, Christian nationalism provides a really direct um, response to that um, and, and legitimizes it in the will of the sacred, which is really powerful. So at different moments of cultural or political upheaval, we see Christian nationalism um, as a framework being something that really comes out and, and unites um, a certain sector of society. And I think what we're living through today, a lot of those organizations and networks that Catherine has written about so well, um, you know, with the rise of the Christian right in the 70s um, and through the 80s, a lot of what we see now um, is due to that kind of moment in um, Christian nationalism history. Which we have to then bring it current um, and listen to a little bit from former President Donald Trump speaking during his 2016 presidential campaign. This is a bit of a speech that Donald Trump gave at Liberty University, which is a private evangelical university. Christianity, it's under siege. I'm a Protestant. I'm very proud of it. Presbyterian to be exact. But I'm very proud of it. Very, very proud of it. And we've got to protect because bad things are happening. Very bad things are happening. And we don't, I don't know what it is, we don't band together. Maybe other religions, frankly, they're banding together and they're using it. And that's what our our country has to do that around Christianity. So, Jamar, Andrew was talking about the history of this movement. How did it change with the rise of Donald Trump's candidacy? Well, um, with Donald Trump, Christian nationalists really found this authoritarian leader dedicated to a very narrow view of um, citizenship and who, quote unquote, counts as American. And they saw him as the, the staunch defender of what they were promoting. And, and really what we heard in that clip was a key tenet of Christian nationalism, which is a sense of aggrievement, a sense of being under attack and under siege. And so to have a presidential candidate name that and to say, I'm on your side, uh, you know, this is this is one of the rays, even going back to to presidents like Ronald Reagan. Um, and, and he's speaking in, in Dallas at First Baptist Church and says, I know you can't endorse me, but I endorse you and what you're doing. Right. It's saying, I believe in 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 what you believe in. I believe that your enemies are my enemies and that unless we take back this country for God. Right. Then then uh, we are going to be in a bad situation. So I think that's what they heard in in Trump. And that's why they supported him again. To Catherine's point, this is uh, a, a, a political movement and it's an organized quest for power. So they saw in uh, Trump a way to to gain and keep that power. So, Catherine, to you, what role then did Christian nationalism play in the insurrection on January 6th? Oh, that's uh, such an important question. We can't fully understand what happened that day without understanding the role of Christian nationalism. So first of all, the ideology played a role because in the view of those insurrectionists, God chose Trump to help restore America as a supposedly Christian nation. So in their minds, if Trump was defeated, it must be against God's will. I mean, they they see themselves engaged in this apocalyptic struggle um, between absolute good and absolute evil. We heard that in the clip that you just played of Trump himself. They'll do anything, no matter how radical, to supposedly save America from pluralistic democracy. And 
You know, there's another aspect that, in my view, is underappreciated, and that's that the networks of Christian nationalism spread election lies, and that primed the rank and file uh, to think that those radical actions were required. The messaging was spread both by movement leadership, um, some of whom actively promoted Trump's lies, others of whom sort of concerned trolled about constitutional irregularities. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, even groups like the um, Council for one of the Council for National Policies affiliated groups uh, called the Conservative Action Project, which is, um, you know, uh, an activism arm of the movement's key net, one of the movement's key networking organizations. They called on leaders to sort of challenge the electoral results in, in various states. So the sort of um, idea that, you know, they should challenge election lies actually came from the top. So, Jamar, what is the relationship? I mean, the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys are also recognized as white supremacist organizations, um, anti-Semitic. What is the relationship here between Christian nationalism and the idea of white supremacy? So we can look historically at one of the most well-known white supremacist groups and notorious groups, the Ku Klux Klan. So um, there were several iterations of the Klan. In, in many ways, the most brilliant and widespread was the one that arose during the Jim Crow era. That was revived in, on Thanksgiving Day in 1915 when a group of white men led by a former Methodist preacher, William Simmons, went up to the stop, top of Stone Mountain, Georgia. And of course, on, uh, in, uh, on Stone Mountain, there's uh, Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, Jeff Davis, these Confederate supposed mm -hmm. heroes. And they revived the Klan in a ceremony that included burning a cross. They built an altar of stones. And on top of that altar, they put an American flag, a sword, and a Bible. Now, if you think about the symbolism there, Andrew said this is a cultural movement. So let's look at these cultural symbols, the flag and the Bible. Again, the church and the nation, coextensive, the sword, the divine sanction of violence, if necessary, to bring about a particular vision of the nation. And I'll quote one of the things that, that William Simmons, the leader of that group, said in a New York Times article in 1922. He said, the Klan admits membership to none but, quote, native-born white Gentile Protestant Americans whose statement of principles was a restoration of the fundamental principles of American democracy, get this, as embodied in the Constitution of the United States, an organization whose code of conduct was Christianity. So right there from the leader of the Klan in the Jim Crow era, you get this connection between Christianity and nation and this particular view of who really counts as an American and what the vision for the nation should be. So Donald Trump is not the only politician that has been connected with Christian nationalism. Uh, GOP Representative Lauren Boebert of Colorado was recently cited for saying, quote, I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. And another politician who's made headlines uh, for embracing the ideology is Doug uh, Mastriano, running as a Republican candidate in Pennsylvania's gubernatorial race, the Associated Press described his primary victory party as, quote, an evangelical worship service. Here's a clip from his victory speech. God is good. And all the time. <laughs> Any uh, freedom-loving Americans in the house here? Wow, 1 Corinthians one twenty seven gives us all hope. God uses the foolish to confound the wise and the weak to confound the strong, right? That's his story, and he uses people like you and me to change history. I always like to say when we make his story our story, we can change history. 
So, Catherine, how does Mastriano's relationship with Christian nationalism differ from, say, Donald Trump's? Well, they are both uh, conflating the idea of America with a particular set of uh, a sort of a religious identity, the idea that there's a pure versus an impure, an insider versus an outsider. And that's just boilerplate religious nationalism. I mean, there's you're going to find little differences in how people articulate those ideas across the board. But broadly speaking, this is an incredibly dangerous um, uh, uh, development. It's anti-democratic at all, all levels. I mean, there's, as Jamar's pointed out, the danger to the values of equality and pluralism that represent the best of the American promise. Um, there's certainly danger to religious freedom, which includes the right to worship any god or sacred idea or none, but also includes the right not to be compelled to worship if you don't want to or support another person's religion with your tax dollars if you don't want to. Um, in a society as inherently pluralistic as ours, this is just in incredibly div divisive talk. And it's, it's interesting that Donald Trump and so many other um, religious nationalist politicians today are identifying a certain like an internal enemy um, that they they see as um, as many fellow Americans, secularists, religious um, moderates, and and liberals and progressives, um, uh, LGBT Americans, and any others of whom they disapprove, and they're directing that sort of kind of hate and contempt toward those outsiders. We're discussing the influence of Christian nationalism on American politics. Coming up, how do Christians feel about Christian nationalism? We'll hear more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember, if you want to have your questions answered on future shows, you can download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get back to the effect of Christian nationalism on communities of faith with this message from Amanda in Atlanta. As someone who left evangelicalism, largely in part because of the church's embrace of Christian nationalism and Donald Trump as a candidate, I'm curious if there will ever be a time in which the Christian vote is not necessary for a U.S. presidential candidate to win. In other words, can a candidate who does not embrace Christianity as a whole or claim to be a Christian, can that candidate still win a uh, federal office at the scale of the U.S. president. Catherine, I feel like that question is for you. Well, no one can uh, predict the future, clearly, but um, it really depends if you're talking about federal offices, you're talking to, uh, if you're talking about the presidency. We're really seeing, um, you know, this is a movement that basically controls the Republican Party at this point and um, is so adept at uh, directing its hate toward those who are different that it would be very difficult in this moment. Um, but I also think that we need to think in terms, uh, not just in terms of religion, but also information bubbles, because in some ways what has been distinctive about this kind of politicized religion is that it functions as a way of containing information, so withholding a lot of information from some people and propagandizing them at the same time. And um, that's just an extension of different types of misinformation worlds that include many elements that are not particularly religious. So it's really the exploitation of religion for political purposes. I um, like to think of it really the defining aspect is liberalism and irrationalism. How much resistance, Andrew, is there among uh, American Christians to the Christian nationalism ideology? 
Well, right now, I think um, broadly, when we survey the American public, there isn't much. Um, the The number of, of Americans, but especially white Christians, who we call rejectors or resistors of Christian nationalism, um, is right around um, 25%. Um, and so they're a minority for sure. Um, they exist. There are Christians that do oppose it, but um, they're vastly outnumbered by accommodators and ambassadors. So when we look um, at white Christians as a whole, about 33% of them are ambassadors, those strong, true believers, and about 35% are accommodators. Um, but when we look at white evangelicals, particularly, it's about eight and 10 are either accommodators and ambassadors. Um, and so there isn't much resistance right now. And so um, when we survey the American public, we see it, it is there, but it is not overwhelming by any stretch. So I want to hear another voicemail from a listener. Let's take a listen to Alex. I'm Alex. I'm calling from Austin. I grew up in a Baptist church in North Texas, and hearing that phrase, America's a Christian nation, was so casual and common. And, you know, when I first learned about the Bill of Rights uh, and the separation of church and state by the Establishment Clause in the First Amendment, I didn't even see it as a as an issue. I was just thinking, oh, it, I guess, you know, it's not a Christian nation by force. But in the years since, I mean, I've really despaired, to be honest. Jesus said, go and make disciples, you know, not force them through law. We're talking to sociologist Andrew Whitehead and investigative reporter Catherine Stewart and historian Jamar Tisby about the conflict of Christian nationalism within communities of faith. And Jamar, what encouragement might you have for Alex? Um, Instead of despairing, what might Alex do? Well, thankfully, there's more attention being paid to Christian nationalism. Uh, You mentioned Amanda Tyler before, and and they have a great resource, Christians Against Christian Nationalism, um, which is a whole suite of of resources that that, uh, people of faith can use. But I would also encourage folks to widen the aperture of Christianity, because the entire story is not white Christians, much less Christian nationalists. So look at, for instance, just one example, the, the, the example of the black church tradition, which has always seen this link between faith and politics, but toward much different ends. I'm thinking of people like Charles H. Pierce, who was a, a, a Methodist minister in um, the 1800s. He said uh, he was in Florida at the time. He said a man in this state cannot do his whole duty ex- as a minister, except if he looks out for the political interests of his people. Now, what he was talking there about was not gaining power for a select few. It's about uh, making lynching illegal. <laughs> it's about expanding the vote to black people. Um, you can think of people like Fannie Lou Hamer. And she was instrumental in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which, by the way, how far Christian nationalists will go. Mississippi rewrote its constitution after having already rewrote it in Reconstruction, rewrote it again in 1890s um, and, and had all of these ways to exclude black people from voting, including poll taxes and literacy tests and whatnot. And in the face of this, you have black Christians like Hamer saying, is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Let's live up to these stated ideals in our founding documents. And you can even go up to the present. You have um, people like Clementa Pinckney uh, from Emmanuel AME Church who was killed 
uh, in his own church, but he was also representing the interests of his people as an elected official, Reverend Raphael Warnock, the senator, um, and, and people who aren't elected officials, but still working toward democracy because of their faith. I'm thinking of folks like Latasha Brown of Black, Black Voters Matter and Bernice King at the King Center and, and tr- continuing this tradition of nonviolent activism. So there is a lot more to the story than white Christians or Christian nationalists. Catherine, you recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, this is after Roe was overturned. And the headline was, Christian nationalists are excited about what comes next. And there was a lot in that piece that is uh, of concern. But you also have some ideas on what the average person can do to support democracy and religious freedom. What are they? Well, you know, I meet many people who are committed to democratic values of equality and justice. And um, I think that we need to invest in all the features of uh, democratic infrastructure. I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of people say it's not enough to vote. And yes, I mean, you know, the, the religious right is very good at creating a positive voting culture. They make you feel no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, whether you're disabled, doesn't matter. You have a role to play in not just voting yourself, but also turning out members of your circle to vote, lending your support to various pieces of the infrastructure uh, that you can. And I think that, you know, um, using, they're not just using the tools of democratic in, uh, political culture. To, they're using the sort of tools of autocracy with all the voter suppression and the like to uh, change the culture. But we can use the, you know, features of uh, democratic political culture, really invest in those features um, in order to uh, try to preserve democracy. And here's another thing that's really important. I think of the words of David Barton, one of those religious right leaders. Um, he's a sort of pseudo historian. Um, whose sort of alternate vision of American history is so important to the movement. He said many years ago, arm yourself with the mentality of a distance runner, not a sprinter. And I think that that's, um, you know, that's wise counsel. This is what they did over decades. They invested in features of that infrastructure and we're really seeing the fruits of that today. And I think sometimes those of us who reject these politics of conquest and division would do well to think long term. So in, you know, the couple minutes that we have left here, Andrew, let me kind of ask you the same question, which is about what steps can people take, especially feeding off of what Catherine just talked about in terms of working the long game? Is that what we're talking about here is something that could take years to accomplish? Yeah, I think, you know, really to think about the threat of Christian nationalism um, to democracy uh, in the U.S. is both a short and long game. I think um, the short game is there are steps being taken right now to roll back access to voting and voting rights in many different states. And so Americans have to respond right now to those because um, they essentially won't need an insurrection next time because the outcome will be decided. Um, and so we have to make sure that all Americans, no matter um, their you know, race, ethnicity, religious, minority or secular, uh, gender, sexuality, anything like that, have access to the vote. But I do think the long game does involve changing of hearts and minds, but that takes so long, as Catherine pointed out. Um, but we have to be involved in that work as well. And I think in that sense, it's Americans um, engaging with views outside of, um, you know, what might have been a bubble around them. So reading books and listening to speakers outside of their religious tradition, um, or as they uh, engage in their religious communities, if they are, especially if they're Christian, to think long and hard about 
Why is there an American flag at the front of the sanctuary? Mm. Um, what would happen if we took that down? What does that mean about us as a community? Um, when we go to church on Sundays, d- does the message feel make us feel like um, a sense of fear and threat yeah. um, where we need to seek power control or um, that we can serve and give um, as a part of this world um, with others. So I think some of that has to take place as well. And kind of making pluralism into a, a verb. Uh, Andrew Whitehead is co-author of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Catherine Stewart is an investigative reporter, author of The Power Worshippers, and Jamar Tisby, historian of race and religion and the author of books on racial justice like The Color of Compromise. Thanks so much to all of you. Today's producer was Sophia Alvarez-Boyd. This program comes to you from WMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. This is 1A.